Well, again, let's go to the book of Hosea. Maybe I should stay more in focus right on what's here. I get to expounding it, though, and then it takes time to get through it because thoughts come to mind, and I don't think that's bad, but it just takes longer to do this. Uh, we left off in chapter 8, verse 12 yesterday, talking about Ephraim uh, hiring lovers and not serving God. In verse 12, I've written to him the great things of my law, that, but they were counted as a strange thing. Who has the Bible? Primarily, the countries that we recognize as Israel today. Now, the Bible has gone and it's around the world and it's been translated into many different languages. But the caretakers of the Bible, the Old Testament scriptures were the Jews, and the New Testament was given or written basically in Greek, but it has been the ha in the hands and through the Middle Ages and today in uh, the hands of Israel. The ones who have kept it, kept it alive, kept it going, keep translating it and passing it out to other countries. So we have been the ones that have been the propagators and the ones to keep the Bible going. Well, God written or wrote those things to us. Understand we're the firstborn church and understand that we are the leading nation, Ephraim, of Israel. So that's whom he is addressing in the book of Hosea. And he said, I wrote to him the great things of my law. We need to understand the Bible was written specifically to us, to Israel as a whole, and more specifically, to spiritual Israel. We would not have a spiritual Israel, a church, if you will, today, if Israel had kept their covenant with God. If they had kept their covenant, their marriage agreement, faithfully with God, at some point he would have offered them eternal life. He didn't at first. And they went away from his covenant, and he knew they would. So he wrote the Bible by some of those people whom he called out who were righteous, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea, various others of the prophets, David. He used them as authors of the Bible for what purpose? For those people back then? No, they had already had a history. They had already sinned. The prophets didn't write until 500 B.C., just before Christ was born in terms of length of time of history. So it was written looking forward to the people whom Christ would begin to convert at the beginning of the New Testament church. And it is even stated in the New Testament that all Scripture was written for us upon whom the ends of the world would come. So this is a message written roughly 500 years before Christ that was written for us upon whom the ends of the world are now coming. Written to us. And the reason I'm making a big point of that as we get started is we need to be sure we take it personally. If God wrote it personally to us, then we need to be sure that we accept it in that light. It's not talking about somebody somewhere else. It's talking about God's church, the spiritual Jews, who replaced the physical Jews here at the end of the age. He now works through his church, whom he calls spiritual Jews. And they don't have to be of Israelite blood. They can be of any blood, any race. And he opened it up. There was a great controversy over that, even among the apostles in that day. Well, should we let the Gentiles in the church? We're of Israel. They didn't understand that God was broadening the scope of Israel. And now spiritual Israel could include any race of people from anywhere. And indeed, in the end-time church, he brought in a lot of people from Gentile countries all around the world. That was God's intent. And that's what has happened. The problem is that he's written us the great things of his law, and Christ and the apostles uh, broadened that perspective and gave us deeper understanding of his law in the New Testament. So he gave it 
And then it was broadened, it was expanded, it was made more in the Spirit than it was in the Old Testament. Christ did not do away with the law. In Matthew 5, 6, and 7, he expanded it into the area of the mind, and not just what the hand does, but what the mind thinks. So it became far more all-inclusive than it had been before. But today, it's counted as a strange thing, isn't it? Right now, today. The laws of God, heart, no, no church that I know of really believes the law of God is still in effect, other than those branches of Worldwide Church of God who still subscribe to it. Strange thing to this nation. Religion's not necessarily a strange thing to them, but the laws of God are. They have religions that do not include it. They sacrifice flesh for the sacrifices of my offerings and eat it, but the eternal accepts them not. And now will he remember their iniquity and visit their sins. They shall return to Egypt. And what has this nation done? It has gone right back into the sinful practices of the world. And indeed, as I was talking in the announcements, we have to consider virtually everything we do and what its origin was and what part of it is pagan and what might just be uh, recognizing uh, food cultures and dress cultures of various countries around the world and some of our activities. We have to be careful. They'll return to Egypt or the sinful system. And we've done that. And we've even seen the church return to the sinful system. Uh, over half of worldwide, I'd say, has either given up religion altogether or gone back to Christmas and Easter and all those things, Sunday worship, all those things that we came out of in the first place. And now many of the branches of it are just sort of drifting and sliding along without really doing anything to return to God in the way that he wants us to return. The Laodiceanism, the lackadaisical, ho-hum approach to Scripture is there replete throughout the church. It's sad, but that's the way it is. For Israel has forgotten his maker. Forgotten the greatness of the God who created us. And builds temples, and Judah has multiplied fenced cities. We look to ourselves with our own religions, our own temples. We tend to defend ourselves rather than looking to God as our defender. But I will send a fire upon his cities, and it shall devour the palaces thereof. So our culture is going down. Then he says in chapter 9, Rejoice not, O Israel, for joy is other people. For you have gone a-whoring from your God. You have loved a reward upon every corn floor. We're looking to financial, materialistic rewards rather than the good blessing and good grace of God. The floor and the winepress shall not feed them, and the new wine shall fail in her. I spent quite a little time yesterday talking, or the day before, about the idols that we have raised up, uh, both physically, out of our families, and everything else, that are getting in the way of our relationship with the true God, our Maker. And we have trouble turning loose of certain things, and truly seeking God who can solve all our problems. Verse 3, they shall not dwell in the eternal's land, but Ephraim shall return to Egypt. So he says, don't rejoice. We won't dwell in the eternal's land. And then it specifically mentions Ephraim. But Ephraim shall return to Egypt. Now that means, that's what, what this is saying is that today Ephraim is in the eternal's land. This is the land God gave to Ephraim. It's the land he gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we're in it. Wherever you find Ephraim is the land that God claims for him and for his people. And he says, we won't stay in it. We'll go back to this world, to Egypt, to sin, and be taken captive there. And they shall eat unclean things in Assyria. So we're going back into the countries of this world, Egypt and Assyria, away from the land that God gave us through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
Once you grasp that, you begin to see it everywhere through the scriptures. How did we miss it before? They shall not offer wine offerings to the eternal, neither shall they be pleasing to him. When you're punished by God and taken into captivity, you won't be pleasing to God in that circumstance. Their sacrifices shall be to them as the bread of mourners. They mourn, but it's just the bread of mourning. It isn't a sacrifice truly to God because of attitude. All that eat thereof shall be polluted, for their bread, for, for their bread, for their soul shall not come to the house of the, of the eternal. They might be given bread to keep them alive to, to work, but they won't receive the bread of the eternal. Christ is the bread. He gives life. They will not find Christ when they're in captivity in Assyria, in Egypt, in the countries around this world where our people will be sold. The Word of God will not be available. God is going to be preaching it as a witness against the beast and the world system for three and a half years while they're in captivity. But there won't be congregations. There won't be ministers. There will not be churches as we know them today. They'll be gone. God's faithful remnant will gather where he wants them gathered. He will come and dwell with them. And from that base, he will send the two witnesses out to witness against the world. That's the only place, then, at that point, that you can find God. He won't be anywhere else. All these works of God, except one, will be taken down. Now, I'm not going to say we're the one that won't. I say we can be part of that if we respond to God's word and do the things we're supposed to do. And that could be true of anyone. So I'm not putting down other groups necessarily, or our own group necessarily, because we could be destroyed too if we don't do what we're supposed to do. We have to keep that first and foremost in our mind. God is going to take his righteous, faithful people and protect them. And those people today are scattered throughout all the churches. So for one church to say, we're it, is not true and can't be true, because God says he's going to gather them from all over the world, from the four corners of the earth. So united and living and all the groups, the hundreds of them, do have some of God's faithful scattered through them who are still concerned about doing things right. Maybe they don't understand some things yet, but their hearts and minds are right, and they will respond when God shows what he's doing and where he's doing it. And they will come to build a temple. That's the way the scriptures are laid out. That's what is going to happen. And it won't be available anywhere else. What will you do in the solemn day and in the day of the feast of the eternal? You're going to be in captivity. You won't have the bread of God. What will you do in the day of the feasts? The day of the solemn day and in the feast of the eternal. For lo, they are gone because of destruction. So what that's telling you is that the feasts of God are going to go away when this country goes down. All these churches that spun off of Worldwide Church of God also are going to go down. And God is going to set up the two witnesses with the faithful remnant to build the temple as a contrast to the temple of the Jews that they will build. That's what's coming down. You won't have any feasts other than the true feast where God is working because when the country goes into captivity, there won't be anybody left. Ninety percent of the church is going into the tribulation. A 10% remnant will be pulled out and taken care of. The ones who respond. Haggai says that, they, that he will stir them to come and build a temple. So it's not any one group. It's people who are faithful to God coming from everywhere. At least 7,000 who have not bowed their knee to Baal. 
Who knows where they are today? I don't know. I hope we're some of them. And I, I know that there are many thousands of them scattered through the church, about 10% of what was. So God is going to do away with the feasts simply because the people are going to captivity. It's a sad thing, but it won't be available. God's not really happy with them. We touched on that in chapter 2 the other day. I will cause all her mirth to cease, verse 11, her feast days, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her solemn feasts. Now, that's not talking about Christmas and Easter. It's not just talking about physical Israel. It's obviously talking about God's holy days. And many of the groups, including most of the mainstream, are not keeping them, most of them on the right days anyway. They're not keeping them according to God's calendar in the heavens. They're keeping according to the Jewish calendar, which did not go all the way back to Moses, but which was in the heavens from Genesis and got changed in Hezekiah's day. And we have to go by what is there in the heavenly clock. Very few are willing to do that today. So God says he's going to cause the feast days and all that to cease. I will destroy her vines and her fig trees and so on. Let me tie one more, since we're here, let me tie one more into that back in Isaiah 1. Here he's giving his general indictment against Judah, and Isaiah also includes Israel and Ephraim as he goes on through the book. But down in about verse 13, well, verse 9, to back up what I was just saying, except the eternal of hosts had left to us a very small remnant. We should have been as Sodom, and we should have been like Gomorrah. So God's saying through Isaiah, one of the major prophets, that he is only going to save back a remnant of his people. That's 10%. And Ezekiel 5 shows some hairs will be thrown back into the fire, so it's a small remnant, a little less than 10%. That matches Isaiah 1.9. But he says, verse 13, Bring no more vain oblations. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons and Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies, I cannot handle. It is iniquity, even the solemn meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates and are trouble to me. I am weary to bear them. Now let's understand that in the light of God's overall approach to the church here at the end time. He was very upset with the church because of our lackadaisical, ho-hum attitude. And it says that he spewed it out of his mouth. Now, if we had a lackadaisical, ho-hum attitude overall, then wasn't it exacerbated, made much worse, at the feasts? Because they became a vacation. They became a time to go to Branson, Missouri, or Orlando, or uh, the beach cities uh, in northern Florida, or California, or wherever, so that people could go play. And their first thought was more, let's get out of services so we can head for Disney World, or Disneyland, or the beach, or wherever, and we'll just enjoy a vacation. And there's very little emphasis on God other than the sermons, which were basically watered down anyway. So it was the feasts have just been a continuation of that. And if God couldn't stand the overall attitude of the church and spewed it out of his mouth and scattered it, then so much the more the feasts, which were dedicated, they were originated by God, they should be dedicated to him to come and worship the king, the Lord of hosts. And Zechariah makes it very clear that's the way it's going to be done in the future. The emphasis should be on God, but it has increasingly in the church become focused on entertainment. So if God couldn't stand us as a church, his feasts were even more abominable. So he says, I, I can't handle that. And of course, as we understand, the problem is this that everybody blames those Laodiceans. And we've been over this many times, but it still is a fact, and it's one that we need to very deeply internalize. How can all these groups be right when they say, almost invariably, we are the Philadelphians? You've got 
300 of them maybe, saying, we're the Philadelphians, we're the very elect, or whatever word they want to use, and the rest of them are Laodiceans. How can they all be right if 300 of them say, we're the only Philadelphians, the rest of you are Laodiceans? They can't all be right. But they think they are. Now, I don't think it makes a lot of difference to me to even try to analyze whether I'm a Laodicean or a Philadelphian. What I see in the scriptures is that we all need to repent and turn to God with our whole heart. And if we do that, then if we happen to have been a Laodicean, we'll repent. If we happen to have been a Philadelphian, then we also will repent and change the things that are wrong. It's just that nobody, you see, is overcoming and growing essentially because if you... Because of the way the ministry portrayed Philadelphia, if you can put yourself in that slot, you think you're okay. And any time you think you're okay, you will not overcome. Like was said in the sermonette, until you admit you have a problem, you're not going to overcome it. So if they lull you to sleep by saying, we're the Philadelphians, then you say, oh, I don't need to overcome. There's nothing bad said about the Philadelphians. That was a wrong approach. God himself told the Philadelphia church, just like he did the other six, if you will overcome, I will grant to, with you to sit in my throne, or whatever promise he gave them specifically there. Now, there must be something wrong with Philadelphia if they have to overcome. So even if you categorize yourself as the Philadelphians, you still have to overcome. That means there's still sin in you. Now they say, well, it doesn't criticize Philadelphia at all. Maybe not as much as it does the others, but telling you to overcome is a criticism. It's saying you have something yet to overcome. So, bottom line, nobody's safe, right? Nobody's safe unless they overcome. I do believe that the whole church became Laodicean. All those out there, and you and me included. Because we all got scattered, didn't we? God said, I'll spew you out of my mouth. So now do you see why I've been emphasizing a little bit here at the feast? Let's put God first. Let's be sure we pray. Let's be sure we spend time with God and worship the King, the Lord of hosts. Let's not lose sight of that as we enjoy our activities and enjoy our food and enjoy games together. Fellowship is a big part of worship where we interact with one another. But let's not forget God himself as we go through this feast. And if we've already started going that way, let's remember these scriptures in here that are written to Ephraim today, two different places here in Hosea we've come across now, where God gives his concern about the feasts. I'm not here to condemn what anybody else is doing. I know that around the world, some groups will be keeping it a little closer to the way God wants it than others. Some will almost abandon God and just vacation. Individuals, peoples, maybe not the groups themselves entirely. But there are varying ways in how people respond to what God says in the Bible. But right here, it says that he's going to send this nation into captivity and the feasts are going to stop. So that tells you he's not talking just to physical Israel who aren't keeping them anyway. He's referring here primarily to the church who are the ones that would have been keeping them. So if that's whom he's talking to, then he's not real happy with the way the church is of God today or doing what they're doing. So we need to examine how we're doing it and be sure we do it according to God's way. And all those other people out there need to examine the scriptures and be sure they're doing it God's way, since he says he can't handle the way we've been keeping the feasts. If he can't handle it, then we need to fix it.
And if he's upset enough to destroy them by sending us into captivity, then that means he's serious about it, and we need to take some serious consideration in how we approach the feast. Now, this year we're keeping on the same day as the, most of the other groups are. Some kept it a month early, and some will be a day or two different, depending on how they look at the scriptures and the heavenly calendar and what the Jews do. But let's be sure we get it right, brethren. Let's not be accusing the others like the so-called Philadelphians accuse all those Laodiceans. Let's just try to do our best to get it right. And they're on their own in trying to get it right. Are they even aware of these scriptures? I don't know. Some of them may be. Some of them may be trying to do something about it. Others are just rocking on like we did in Worldwide and didn't realize anything happened. Sad to say. So what are you going to do in the solemn day, in the day of the Feast of the Eternal? Well... They're going to be gone. You better find out where God is, where he's working, where he's going to do his end-time work, and where he's going to build his temple, and get involved, because that's the only place you'll find the feasts after this nation goes down. And start making plans early, because I don't think it's going to be too long before it comes down. The markets are still going down in a steep dive after that big day, and all the euphoria thinking everything's going to be fine, but it was down... 300 again this morning and about 150 when I checked before I came over here. I want to watch this and see how it parallels these scriptures. And so far it's paralleling them pretty closely. Anyway, the feasts are gone because of destruction. Egypt shall gather them up. Memphis shall bury them. Uh, they go into captivity in these pagan lands, anything that had to do with God is going to be buried in pagan lands. So you'll not be allowed to keep the Sabbath. You'll not be allowed to keep the feast days. You're a slave working seven days a week. And if you say, I won't work on the Sabbath, or I won't work when the feasts come around, your head will roll off. And that'll be the end of that. And you'll have to be a martyr for God's truth. But you won't be allowed to keep it. Thorns shall be in their tabernacles, into the verse. We're here at the Feast of Tabernacles, the solemn day, the Feast of the Eternal. And they won't have any booths. Instead of a, a booth to live in, a temporary dwelling at the feast, they'll have thorns. The days of visitation are come. The days of recompense are come. That's no truer than it is today. Never has been since it was written. The days of recompense are upon us. Israel shall know it. We're beginning to become aware of it, and that's why there's panic. The prophet is a fool. The spiritual man is mad for the multitude of your iniquity and the great hatred. We've gone so far into sin in this nation and in the church that there is so much iniquity, and the spiritual leaders who should be leading don't even know, really, what's going on. And they don't have any answers. They're stuck in 1953 or 4 in, view, in their view of how this end is coming upon us. And they're still expecting a ten-nation dictatorship in Europe only to destroy the United States. But we see a much bigger picture today. But some have not read the Bible and found the bigger picture. So they don't know what quite to do with this new world order that's bigger than just ten nations in Europe. They don't know what to do with it. But the new world order has divided the whole world into ten nations or ten divisions that they will put leaders over, or kings, using the biblical terminology. The whole world will worship the beast. How did we miss that in 1950 and 1960? But well, we did. They'll all be a part of it, except for a few of God's people. So those who are supposedly spiritual and should be leading don't know what's going on. Verse 8, the watchman of Ephraim was with my God. Now God himself says he's going to appoint watchmen. He calls the two witnesses his watchmen. And a couple of places it just mentions watchman. The watchman of Ephraim was with my God, but the prophet is a snare of a fowler in all his ways, and hatred in the house of his God. Now this verse is translated 
I checked different translations on it, and uh, some of them indicate that this is part of the unrighteousness from verse 7, uh, and some indicate that it's separate from that, the way they translated it. <laughs> Religion as a whole and most of the leadership is wrong, but it does say, the watchman of Ephraim was with my God. This is Hosea speaking. And I think that may be the true sense of it. But the prophet, the true prophet, is a snare of a fowler in all his ways and hatred in the house of his God. So if God does have watchmen who are doing it his way, it says that he will be considered a fowler, uh, like a net, to capture people, and be, and be hated in the house of his God. If you start reading these prophecies that God has written and start applying them to the church and to the world we see today, they'll hate you for it. They can't see it, won't accept it. They don't want to hear bad news. They want to hear smooth, easy things. They don't want to hear the absolute truth. Wouldn't you rather be warned when something as horrible as the events leading up to and included in the day of the Lord are coming on this world, wouldn't you rather be warned? I know it's uncomfortable, but wouldn't you like to know what's coming so you might prepare against it? And yet I find people, I was talking to somebody out in the world the other day in a, just a setting where I happened to come across them, and I said, boy, things are getting bad in the world. Looks like she's all coming down. And the person says, oh, my dad's always talking to me about that, and I just prefer to keep my head in the sand and go on with my life. Admitted it. I don't want to know about that stuff. I just, I'll just wait till they come cut my head off. <laughs> That's scary, but a lot of the churches in that situation, too, don't preach prophecy. With, you know, they don't understand what's going on anyway, so they don't want to preach it. And some of them will tell you, well, these things are 100, 200, 300 years off. We didn't have that all right. So they just kind of try to put it away, put it off. Don't deal with it. Well, I believe it's coming soon, and we'd better deal with it. I want you to escape it. I want to escape it. don't want to be in the middle of it. So let's look at all these scriptures. I mean, I used to go through some of these books, and I didn't get hung up on every verse like I am now because it wasn't as real, it wasn't as alive, it wasn't as now as it is today. Now we go down through here and, and you can sit there and think, well, as we read this, you can think about what's happening in this country and in the world and say, hey, that fits right now. That just fits. That fits. It's just like it was written and put on the news because what's being said here is what we see before our very eyes. The Bible now is completely in tune with what's happening. Before it was prophecy. Now it's reality day by day. And people don't want to hear this. If you do read these prophecies, they'll hate it. Verse 9, they have deeply corrupted themselves as in the days of Gibeah. Therefore he will remember their iniquity. He will visit their sins. He's comparing us now to what it was like in Gibeah. You may not remember that story, and I'm going back to Judges 19 right now to read the whole thing to you, but in a nutshell, there was this fellow who took a concubine, and uh, then she whored around on him. And he was upset, and he went to retrieve her, and he went into Gibeah. And the story is very similar to Lot's experience with the, the men of the city who wanted to uh, take the two angels who had come to visit Lot and to tell him to get out of there. They wanted to get him to throw them out in the street so they could abuse them as sodomites, as homosexuals. And they had gotten to that point in Gibeah as well. So when this man came in, uh, the men of the city said, kick him out the door so we can take pleasure in him. They had turned homosexual. And the man who owned the house said, no, I have uh, my own, I think it was his handmaid, and my daughter, who's a virgin, 
I'll throw them out instead, kind of like Plot did. Weird. Uh, so he threw the concubine out. I forget if he threw his daughter out or not. The concubine, I think it was only. And uh, they abused her until dawn. And the man who owned the concubine looked out the door the next morning, and she was laying up kind of on the porch, the threshold, and he spoke to her, and she didn't answer. She'd been pretty well used up through the night. Wasn't much left of her. So he loaded her up, took her home, and then he cut her into twelve pieces, bones and all, and sent a piece to each of the tribes of Israel as a witness against how sinful and how debauched Israel had become. Now, it doesn't sound like we're that bad today, does it? But didn't Connecticut just the other day okay that people of the same sex could marry? Isn't California considering it? It's been off and on in different places in California, and they're about to do it in the whole state. And it's getting to the point that we have a homosexual, queer, unnatural, abominable circumstance in our country. And homosexuality is just increasing right and left everywhere. Does this fit or not? We become as Gibeah. Now, it wasn't the cutting of the woman in 12 pieces that was the real story here. It was how weird and how estranged from God and how perverted Israel had become. And that's the story that the man was trying to get across by dividing the woman up and shipping her to all 12 tribes. So when he says it's become as Gibeah, now you know what it's talking about. Verse 10, I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your fathers as the first ripe and the fig tree at her first time. He looked upon, I mean, if you're out in the wilderness, there's not much around, and you come across a grapevine with nice fat fruit on it, juicy, that would be quite a find, wouldn't it? Now God says, that's the way I looked upon Israel when I found her, just like a cluster of juicy grapes. But then there, became, there came a problem. Uh, they went to Baal Peor and separated themselves into that shame, and their abominations were according as they loved. They went whatever direction their emotions wanted to go. Aren't we a nation today that just sort of does what it pleases? If it feels good, do it, without consideration for morals or the law or for what it will do to society as a whole. We just do it, and it's destroying our society. Same situation that he's talking about here, describing us. As for Ephraim, verse 11, their glory shall fly away like a bird from the birth and from the womb and from the conception. So away we go. Startled birds, they fly away. So that's the way our glory, that's the way our power, our honor is going to flee away. That's fairly sudden, isn't it? You know, if a turtle decides to leave your premises, he does it kind of slowly. But when you startle a bird, it leaves fast. So it fits in with all those scriptures about our destruction coming instantly or suddenly or in a day or in a month, a very short period of time. Though they bring up their children, yet will I bereave them, that there shall not be a man left. Yea, woe also to them when I depart from them. So you think it's bad when you departed from me. Wait till I depart from you. You know, God has been with us to this point. He said he would bless us because of Abraham's obedience. And up until just recently and now, we have been blessed because of Abraham's obedience. He made those promises to Abraham and he kept them. But we have become so sinful, he says, there comes a point where you can't lean on Abraham anymore, just like Christ told the Jews, you can't lean on Abraham anymore. He says, you're corrupt. I reject you. And now he said to us, Ephraim, you can't rely on Abraham anymore. I'm departing from you. And I'm going to let the destroyer of the Gentiles have you. Ephraim, as I saw Tyre, is planted in a pleasant place. 
I believe that New York City is the modern tire. And it's in a pleasant place. But it is a sinful place. That's where people look to. Oh, you've got to go to the Big Apple. It's so exciting there. It's such a wonderful city. I've been there a few times. I think it's a hole. It's dirty. It's crowded. It's nasty. It's high-priced. I don't want to go there unless I absolutely have to touch down in an airplane there. It's in a pleasant place, but Ephraim shall bring forth his children to the murderer. Yes, God gave us a beautiful land, gave it to Abraham, and then passed it on down to us. But we're aborting our babies by the millions. We're killing our own children. We haven't started eating them yet, but we are killing them. And we have big arguments going on right now between the candidates as to who is pro-abortion and pro-life or, or against life. What's your stand? Well, my stand is you shouldn't murder. God's stand is don't kill. What has a baby done that it ought to die? Just because you committed fornication or adultery and had a child you don't want. You're going to make that child pay with its life because of your sin. Now that's fair and loving, is it not? In this Christian nation, we have murdered millions of babies. And not just those that were in the first term. Now they reach up in the mother with a spoon and poke it in the skull and they suck the brains right out of the baby before they remove it from the mother. Now how barbaric can you get? And that's done by the medical profession, the revered gods of medicine of our country today, approved by the governments of the states and the feds. How sick can you get? It's been a pleasant place, hasn't it? But God says right in the middle of it, we're murdering our children. I suspect there's more of that in this country than any other country on earth. Well, the Chinese throw a lot of girls in the river, but I don't know how many. But it's certainly here in our country. And we ought to know better. God has given us his wonderful law. And we throw it away and murder our own children. Give them, O Eternal, what will you give? What will you give a people that does something like that? What kind of punishment do they deserve for killing their own children? Give them a miscarrying womb and dry breasts. God is going to cut the baby production off. So you're going to murder your kids. You're not going to have them anymore. I'll send you. You're going to die in tribulation. You're going to die in war. You're, not, you're, you're going to quit having babies. All their wickedness is in Gilgal. Gilgal is another city that became a center of idolatry. And if we are not an idolatrous nation today, I don't know how you describe us. We have so many idols. One of our idols is my peace of mind and my freedom. You have an unwanted child, you kill it. That way you get your freedom. You aren't burdened with that child that you didn't want. Well, if you're not going to keep them, don't make them. Take some responsibility. A lot of them you didn't intend to make in the first place, America. A lot of it was because you're fornicating and committing adultery, and they just sort of, uh-oh, appeared. So you want to cover your sin by not living with the fruits of it. 
We shouldn't put ourselves in the positions where they could even start in the first place, and then we wouldn't have unwanted pregnancies, would we? Maybe married people would have an oops, but that's different. And they're in a family where they can take care of the oops and learn to love it and keep it and enjoy it. Don't kill it. All their wickedness is in Gilgal, idolatry, for there I hated them because of the idolatry and putting themselves ahead of God. For the wickedness of their doings, I will drive them out of my house. It's going to drive us out of the church. Most of the church is going into tribulation. I will love them no more. All their princes are revolters. The leaders in the church have revolted against God not just by going into paganism, but even those who kept the Sabbath, the holy days, are revolting against God by not becoming on fire and digging the sin out of their lives and turning to God with their whole heart, the depth of their beings. That's what God wants of us, and most of us are not doing it. I'll preach it, and I'll try to live it. You hear it, you try to live it. We need to get it fixed. We don't want to be in this category. Ephraim is smitten. Their root is dried up. They shall bear no fruit. The fruitfulness, the double fruitfulness of Ephraim, the blessings that God gave it are going to dry up and be gone. Our harvest will stop. There will be nothing to eat. The root dried up, no fruit. Yea, though they bring forth, yet will I slay even the beloved fruit of their womb. It says, basically, I'm going to cut off the society. I'll cut off the babies. But even those that are born, it'll be cut off. We already read how the enemy coming in is going to rip up pregnant women, kill babies that can't produce in their new world order of slaves. My God will cast them away because they did not hearken to him, and they shall be wanderers among the nations or among the peoples. No home, no root, no place to live. We'll be kicked out of our houses, taken into slavery, and just be wanderers, wondering how to eat, how to stay warm, have to work for the New World Order as peasants in order to even have food. Chapter 10 Ephraim, or Israel, is an empty vine. He brings forth fruit to himself. It's an empty vine for anyone else. We are so selfish, we are just producing for ourselves. We don't care about anybody else. According to the multitude of his fruit, he has increased the altars. According to the goodness of his land, they have made goodly images. We've been able to make big churches. We've been able to uh, build all kinds of edifices to our self-serving society. Goodly images, big fine buildings, not just churches, but our financial edifices, huge skyscrapers in New York, Chicago, and various other places that are there as monuments to our wealth that God gave us. Their heart is divided. There's the problem. You can't serve two masters. Double-minded is unstable in all his ways. So in the church, we're double-minded. We try to worship God, but we follow the materialistic idols of this world. We get into its credit thing, and then we have tr trouble making ends meet. And then we say, well, a tithe, God doesn't bless me. Well... You've got to obey all the things of God. And when you imbibe of the system that we have out here and all its easy credit and put yourself in a terrible financial position, you're disobeying all the economic and financial rules of God. And then you say, well, I tithed for three months or six months and God didn't just open the windows of heaven and bless me, therefore I don't think that's right anymore. Shouldn't, don't need to do that because God didn't do what he said he'd do. Well, you weren't doing all the things God told you to do. And when we begin to...
to truly serve God with our whole hearts and keep all His instructions, then He is going to open the windows of heaven. But read all of the book of Malachi, would you? And see all the things God says is wrong with our society and with the church of God. And then understand that He's saying, if you will clean up this vomit that is in all tables and the filth of your divided hearts, then I will open the windows of heaven and bless you. But everything God says has a contingency involved. You have to do God's word. Follow his way of life all the way through. And then turn and ask him to bless. You can't just do the things you think, well, maybe this will get me something right away if I do this thing. No, you've got to look at everything God says and fix it all. And then you can in faith and good conscience say, God, now open the windows of heaven and bless me. And he's going to hear us then. <clears throat> but we can't fix one thing and say, okay, God, I fixed that. Now bless me. Take his Ten Commandments. Well, I think I'll keep this one. And you ignore the other nine and you expect God to bless you? He says, if you break one, you've broken them all anyway, and you have. To steal is idolatry. It's putting something you want ahead of God and his instruction. So that puts the thing you wanted to steal as a God in place of God. It's that simple. If you want God to bless you, keep all ten. And all this big, thick book does is explain the ten. That's all it is. And it's explaining us to us here how we've broken the first commandment. We've put all these idols up. And God says, our heart's divided. We worship the idols of greed, self, and materiality, the same time we're trying to worship God, and Christ made it very clear, didn't he? You can't serve God in mammon or money. <coughs> Do the churches say, well, have we committed idolatry? No, that explains it. Their heart is divided. <coughs> now shall they be found faulty. God sees the fault in that. He shall break down their altars. He shall spoil their images. For now they shall say, we have no king because we feared not the eternal. What then should it, a king do to us? He's going to make conditions such that they're going to say, we disobeyed God and now the whole world has come down on top of us. What good would a leader do us now? <laughs> but God is going to provide righteous leadership that he directs and we better go there. It says, they have spoken words swearing falsely and making a covenant. Thus judgment springs up as hemlock in the furrows of the field. We've done the same thing ancient Israel did. We said we'll obey you when we were baptized. We pledged, we vowed before God that we would commit ourselves to his way. And then we spent the rest of our lives ever since then trying to imbibe of the world at the same time appearing righteous before God. That's a divided heart. We have things that we will put ahead of God. God says, do this, and we say, well, I would, but, you know, I've got to take care of my kids, or I've got to do this, or I've got to do that. Let me go and bury my father first. Let the dead bury their dead. Come and follow me. We have to put God first. Anything we do less than that is going to come back on us. It's going to come back big time. Now, those are hard words, but for your good, they're for our good, my good. I have to put God first in everything and then trust him to take care of the rest. And he will. Will he find faith when he comes to the earth? Where is he going to find it? In you? In me? He's going to be looking for it. Where is he going to find it? Now, unless somebody stands up and walks in faith, he won't find it. 
Do you just say, well, I wonder who that'll be? Or do you take personal responsibility? Will you own that? That I need to walk in faith? I need to walk like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why did we go through all that? Spend these months going through how our fathers lived unless we're willing to take personal responsibility and live like them. Otherwise, it's just Bible stories. Doesn't mean a thing. Unless somebody, somewhere, takes it personal and does something about it and actually walks in faith. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph did it. David did it. Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel did it. Go to Hebrews 11. James, Peter, Paul, John did it. Somebody here at the end time has to say, I'm not going to walk the way of the world. I'm going to walk in faith, obeying everything God says, and let the devil take the hindmost. Or, better put, let God deliver those later on when their time is come, be it the millennium or the great white throne judgment. He knows when our kids, our relatives, our friends would best be called, when they would best respond to him. He has a, he has a plan for every human being who has ever been born. He counts the hair of the head. That is a pretty intense interest. So he knows each and every individual. And he knows when they would best respond to him and where he wants them in his family. Whether in the 144,000 or in the millennium, the great white throne judgment, by that time all Israel essentially will be saved, only a few will have weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. Now, would you like to save all of your kids today? Yeah. Do you preach at them and try to get them to see what you see? Yeah. Do they listen to you? Nah. Are they going to listen to you? Nah. If their mind is not open, they're not going to understand. And no man can come except the Spirit of the Father draw him, John 6, 44. They can't come unless God opens a mind and calls. So all of your futile attempts to convince them are not going to do a bit of good. And it basically, they'll, it'll just turn them against you and antagonize, is all it'll do. I talked to someone just the other day back somewhere across the country that's attached to us, but has not become fully with us at this point yet. And uh, they're fighting the same battle that you and I fought long ago when we came in, and we were so excited about all the things we were learning, and we tried to tell them to our friends and relatives, and they thought we were nuts. And the things we have since learned out of this book that other people are not reading very assiduously... They read it. They don't really get into it. They don't really study it. And they haven't found these things that are in here that we're talking about this very day. Most of them. A few may have. But if I were to preach these sermons to them, they'd say, that's crazy. That's nuts. He's mad. Insane. But it's here. God knows when to call our children. Let's don't get too far there. We went there the other day. But it's just a fact. I don't spend time worrying about mine. I've said, they're in your hands, Father. You call them when is the best time for them to make it. I don't worry myself. I can't do anything about it anyway, so it doesn't do me a bit of good to worry about it. I love them. I'm concerned. But I need to be getting myself ready to be there to help them when God does call them, if it isn't in this age. It may be in the next one. I don't know. But I have to walk in faith 
but he will do what is best for them when the right time has come. And I can't make that judgment. I simply can't make that judgment. I'm not smart enough. I'm not wise enough. I don't understand the plan of God well enough to know when my children would best be called. It's up to the fa their Father in heaven, not their Father on this earth. Their Father in heaven is a whole lot smarter, a whole lot wiser, and a lot more powerful than I am. And he can deal with them in his way, in his time, as he so chooses, and I know he'll do it right. So I'm not going to spend my life down here dithering over them. I'm going to try to get me there so I can be there to welcome them when they are called. That, to me, is what is truly important. Hard to always keep that in balance, but that's the way it is and should be. <clears throat> Verse 4 of chapter 10, They have spoken words swearing falsely and making a covenant. Yeah, we vowed to put our lives and the lives of our families in the hands of God, and that we've been taking it back since. We lied. We swore falsely. The inhabitants of Samaria shall fear because of the calves of Beth-Avon, for the people thereof shall mourn over it, and the priests thereof that rejoiced on it, for the glory thereof, because it is departed from it. People are beginning to fear now when they're seeing the power, the strength of this nation destroyed. It shall, all, it shall be also carried to Assyria for a present to King Jerob. Ephraim shall receive shame, and Israel shall be ashamed of his own counsel. Lists us first as the leader of Israel, the one to go down the worst from the highest pedestal. As for Samaria, her king is cut off as the foam upon the water. See how waves come up on the beach? When they recede, the foam comes off the top of the wave and is left on the sand. That's the way our glory will depart, the way our leadership will depart. We, they think they're powerful men up there at the head of both the nation and the church. God says our leadership will just be cut up off as foam on the water. No more powerful than that. The high places also of Avon, the sin of Israel, shall be destroyed. <clears throat> high places means altars, idols, all going away. The thorn and the fifth thistle shall come up on their altars, and they shall say to the mountains, Cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. That's repeated in the book of Revelation. Things are going to get so bad, they'll scream for the mountains and the hills to fall on them, to kill them. They'll seek death and can't find it, it says in Revelation. Quoted from right here. Is this an end-time book or not? Revelation certainly is, and it quotes Hosea. Talking about the same period of time. Hosea is not written for ancient Israelites. It's written for us today. Americans. This was, they, they weren't living when this was written. <clears throat> but American people are living today, walking the earth, going in and out of the stores, working at their jobs. The people walking our land today are the same people that are going to be crying for the mountains and the rocks to fall on them and kill them and keep them from he who is coming. They're going to be so scared of God and so fearful that they want to die and can't. O Israel, you have sinned from the ways of Gibeah. We've gone queer, just like Gibeah did. Queer nation, you could call it. We're abominable and perverted. We'll call a spade a spade. Because God does. They were like Gibeah. The battle in Gibeah against the children of iniquity did not overtake them. It is in my desire that I should chastise them, and the people shall be gathered against them when they shall bind themselves into their two furrows. I don't know exactly what that means, uh, but God certainly is going to chastise. And Ephraim is an heifer that is taught going to change, and loves to tread out the corn, but I passed over upon her fair neck. I will make Ephraim to ride, Judah shall plow, and Jacob shall break his clods. He's changing the tenor of it here, 
He's been talking about destroying and chastening, and now he's going to be talking about not a backsliding heifer, but one that is willing to plow. <clears throat> Sow to yourselves in righteousness, reap in mercy. Break up your fallow ground. Go ahead and plow, work. Plant a crop of righteousness. For it is time to seek the eternal till he come and rain righteousness upon you. We're not going to become righteous in and of ourselves. It's, a, it's an uphill battle, brethren. But God is going to rain righteousness upon us after the trials, the testing, the troubles are over. <coughs> God is going to rain righteousness on us. You have plowed wickedness. You have reaped iniquity. You have eaten the fruit of lives because you did trust in your way in the multitude of your mighty men. We've trusted in our defense, our military, our leaders, and even when we had financial panic here recently and still are, we're looking to the crooks, the thieves, to deliver us instead of to God. Therefore shall a tumult arise among your people, and all your fortresses shall be spoiled. Our military is going to be defeated. A shalman poisoned Beth Arbel in the day of battle. The mother was dashed in pieces upon her children. Our mother country is going to be dashed in pieces on her children. So shall Bethel do to you because of your great wickedness. In a morning shall the king of Israel utterly be cut off. So not suddenly here, not in a day, not in a moment, but in a morning. Every reference to when this happens is very, very quickly. The space of a morning. <clears throat> you put them together and say, well, aren't these contradictory? No. All he's saying is a short period of time, and he expresses it in different ways. So there's some good advice for us here today. He says, it's all coming down. Be sowing righteousness and be reaping mercy and seek the eternal until he come and rain righteousness on us. We can't let up. We can't give up. We have to keep moving forward and build righteousness, <clears throat> get rid of our divided heart, and worship God with all our heart, mind, soul, body, and being. And he will rain righteousness upon us. Well, let's stop there then for today.